But from a serious ship captain, the carrier strike group admiral perspective, if I had air crew coming back and saying there's something flying around that's not an aircraft, it's not a balloon, it's not a flock of seagulls, and it's trundling through our military training exercise airspace and just off the coast of San Diego, I would have said, hey, training time out. Maybe we can afford to send a few extra assets and, and divert some resources, time, energy, staff, fuel to investigate this further because it could be an adversary. It could be a safety of flight issue. There's something out there that we might smack into. Year years later, I realized just how little was done to investigate in the moment and to capture even the basic information. So I think that, you know, part of what you're advocating for and what I advocate for is to have a standardized systematic process, a way to report and to have a, a template to follow, to collect that information and put it through the right channels into a, an archive or a database where it can be analyzed systematically and we can make sense of it. Welcome to Merged. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, I'm joined by Alex Dietrich, and we're doing something a little different. Uh, today, we're going to be doing a remote interview. Um, a lot of my listeners and followers may be familiar with Alex from her experiences with the Tic Tac. Uh, but first, I would like to just get a little understanding about who she is and where she is today. Uh, Alex, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So what are you doing today? Uh, well, today is the first day of school for my kids. Uh, I dropped them off uh, early this morning with their backpacks and their uh, lunches and their water bottles. Uh, I have three small kids, four, six, and eight. Uh, and then I headed over to a different campus uh, where I teach. So we had a faculty day at the University of Colorado Boulder, uh, where I teach in the engineering management and engineering leadership programs. And you've been teaching for a little while, right? I believe you are at the Naval Academy before that? Yes. So I uh, recently retired and moved to Boulder. Uh, after serving 20 years uh, in the Navy. Uh, the first 10 years was operational uh, as a pilot uh, and then deploying as an engineer. Uh, and then the last 10 years, I was living the charmed life of an academic, uh, teaching at the Naval Academy in Annapolis and then uh, the Consortium of Schools in D.C. Uh, so George Washington University, Georgetown Howard Catholic University of Maryland College Park. And you went to the Naval Academy as a student? No, I actually, I went to GW, George Washington University oh, did. in D.C. Okay. Very good. Um, and did you join OCS out of there or were you at the, did you do ROTC? ROTC, yes. When I was, I, I tell my students, um, you know, as part of my introduction and my origin story uh, is that when I was uh, a teen and looking at colleges and programs and what I wanted to do with my life, uh, I was very selfish. I was very self-centered and I wanted to do something cool. I wanted to travel and have an adventure. Uh, and so that's why I uh, was interested in flying and, and doing that through the Navy, uh, a service that traveled around the world and had these adventures. Um, and I ended up going through the program successfully and commissioning in May of 2001. And then when I went down to flight school, uh, in Pensacola, went through ground school, and then headed to primary in Corpus Christi. I had my first flight on 9-11. Oh, wow. So that, yeah, that that selfish, self-centered uh, individual, you know, really was in for a shock. And it was a, you know, paradigm shift for the world, but, um, you know, certainly for me and and realizing that it's not about me and my selfish adventure that I'm part of something bigger than myself. And I've taken an oath, you know, I'm an officer uh, in the military. What, what does that mean? And how do I contribute in a meaningful way? What was the feeling of your colleagues? You know, I was in, I was still in school when that happened. And so it was a little bit different, but for a group of individuals that are joining the armed service and just going through their training, I'm just curious, what, what was the feeling? Yeah, it, it was shock. You know, we were young, we were naive. Uh, to begin with, you know, our prefrontal cortex uh, cortices weren't fully developed yet, uh, but we all had this uh, sudden sense of, of, you know, what the hell do we get into? <laughs> uh, 
uh, this isn't what I signed up for. Um, you know, my ROTC instructors, and I think a lot of the academy folks, you know, their instructors at the academy uh, had told stories about Mediterranean cruises, you know, and, and having these uh, very different careers and very different experiences. And we realized uh, literally overnight that's not going to be our uh, our journey. You know, we're we're going to the desert. Yeah, that's interesting yeah. because for me, I, I when I when I joined, that was the only place. So I that was my expectation going in to some degree. Although of course I didn't realize what it would actually be like to serve in that capacity. Uh, but right. to even like have a memory of what it was like before we, you know, essentially went to the Middle East for X amount of years is 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 something I would say it was a very fine line. Some people have those memories and some people don't. So it's interesting to hear you had those expectations. My midshipman cruises, the summers between my uh, college years, uh, we went to San Diego and uh, Guyana, Italy. Uh, you know, I, again, I had this very different pre-9-11 uh, expectation and, and even, you know, snippets of a personal experience. Uh, and even, you know, getting getting my uniforms and, and my ID and going on and off of a base uh, in Pensacola and then for the short time in Corpus, uh, you know, you just drove on. There was no sentry uh, house. There were no gates. Uh, you know, certainly no uh, metal detectors or anything that we see now when you go onto a military installation. Um, having gone to school in D.C., I used to do a run where I would run up to the Capitol steps. I'd run up the steps, high five the security guards, and then uh, run back to my dorm <laughs> from there. And you can't even can't even get close to the building now. So, uh, yeah, I have just just enough memory pre-9-11 to appreciate how different it is now. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, I, the date slipped in my mind. You may know, but for our listeners, they may not be aware. It's actually a relatively new addition that uh, they allow uh, females to, to fly in the Navy as combat aviators. Do you remember the year when, or, or about the time frame? Because you know, two thousand one is pretty early as far as how many females were in those positions. Right. So the combat exclusion uh, repeal was in nineteen ninety one, I think. Uh, so the ninety two NDAA would have, uh, I think, when it was passed. Um, but, but definitely, uh, you know, there was a generation of women who went out and and uh, were the the first. Um, but there was never a critical mass. Uh, there was always sort of a, a trickle of women going through the pipeline. Um, and for a variety of reasons, uh, you know, it never really gained traction in terms of having a cohort of peers, a cohort of mentors, uh, adjustments to policy to account for uh, family planning and uh, other, other things that women might want to do in the course of a, a career trajectory. Um, so, you know, I'm certainly grateful for those women who went ahead, um, and, and encouraging and, and trying to mentor as I can the women who are trying to make it today. Very cool. Yeah. I, you know, I'm sure she's not listening, but, um, we, we, I, I had several female pilots that were within my like squadron of space that I, I had the utmost respect for. Uh, that were incredible aviators and people just for, you know, being in uh, operating in that environment. I know there's, you know, very, and you brought it up yourself. I mean, there are various challenges um, and issues that are, are present for women in combat zones and on boats just due to the nature. There's not that many of you and it's hard to, you know, connect with a room full of guys goofing off. I know how that is. So um, I appreciate, you know, the the sacrifice you made and to, to be able to pursue that type of adventurous lifestyle, especially, you know, in your position, it might be more challenging. So I applaud you for that. Thanks. Yeah, no, it was, um, it was an adventure. And, you know, I certainly consider, uh, the guys in my squadron, uh, you know, to be like brothers, uh, you know, you love them, but you don't always like them. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you know, one thing I can relate with is that, you know, you had a, a pretty interesting experience when you were pretty junior in your squadron. Um, and before we allow you to kind of go into just a little bit of detail, because I know you've told it a million times, but just, just so we can touch on it. Um, but I have to say, there's all sorts of interesting, you know, considerations when you have someone that's 
junior like yourself flying off of uh, the wing of of your skipper and other senior officers, especially in a normal situation, uh, never mind in a situation where there's a high degree of uncertainty. Uh, did you feel that your rank, you know, when you when you were flying and you observing this, did did you feel like you were relying on the others there to help guide you through this this situation, this engagement that you were in, or you know, was it, or did everyone just seem to rise to the occasion to some degree? I, I I'm curious to how that that perspective or how that how that worked during the flight. Yeah, so I know you're familiar with the dynamic in the cockpit uh, that we say there is no rank in the cockpit. And that's part of why we use call signs and. You know, we have a very standardized qualification pipeline and, and everybody has to meet those standards and, and that we respect that somebody, you know, even though uh, they might have a different rank on their shoulder that, you know, they're a section lead or a division lead or uh, whatever their, their qual is. Um, I just joined the squadron in July of 2004. Uh, so having just come out of flight school, just out of the, um, you know, I had just done the, the mid-air refueling uh, syllabus. I had just done my carrier qual in uh, that particular aircraft. Uh, so I, I really felt and really was uh, new. I, I still had my FNG uh, named Patch. Uh, yeah. And so... Um, Yeah, I I was trying to just be safe around the boat. I was just trying to hang on uh, when it came to uh, tactics and, you know, still learning the systems and trying to make sure that I was uh, technically and tactically proficient. So. And then you get was, thrown into a situation where all that goes away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you know, I didn't feel, um, I you know, folks weren't, um, you know, it was, it was, I was as much of an FNG as anybody else in the squadron. You know, there was no hazing, there was no, um, but I don't, I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Special new guy attention. perhaps. Yeah. It was just, I was just new guy, uh, bumbling along and, you know, we launched on what should have been a really mundane routine training mission um i was you know and, and we did this by design the ops and the schedulers would would mix us up in a way that made sense so the fact that i was the most junior or one of the most junior pilots you know i was on the wing of the most senior pilot so dave fraber commander fraber and the skipper of the squadron uh, but then also my weapon systems officer the wizzo in the back seat was a department head um, and then there was a more senior lieutenant in the uh, skipper's backseat. So, you know, they, they were thoughtful and, and intentional about this scheduling and making sure that the crews were balanced in experience. Um, but in that particular situation, I was definitely the most green, <laughs> mm-hmm. hanging on. You know, I remember being a student at aviation pre-flight indoctrination back when I, like, was just proud to fit in my flight suit, basically, and that's about all I knew, uh, or even to just wear it. Um, and I remember them saying that they'll, you know, there's probably going to be one flight in your life that you never forget. Um, and yours, you know, and I, I would, I would, I would venture to guess that perhaps this incident is is the one for you. But yeah, that was going to be my question. Is that I imagine that there are other flights as well, and I would, I would like to ask if there are there are other non non tic tac related flights that are your your key flights that you remember and if you'd like to share any of those yeah I, so so people always ask or have this assumption that this tic tac experience was ha- somehow uh definitive or that it was uh sort of etched in my uh psyche that it haunts me uh do i leave sleep over it you know do i think about it and i and i don't <laughs> um it it in the in the moment was exciting uh, because it was something new and different and unexpected. Um, but it it you know I didn't feel an immediate imminent danger. Uh, I didn't feel immediately threatened. Uh, I was cautious. I was a little anxious about you know what is this? What are we looking at? But 
we were just off the coast of San Diego. You know, I was I was fairly comfortable that this was not going to harm us in, in that particular moment, balanced with the fact that we're in a relatively uh, recent, you know, post 9-11 era. So, so, you know, all of that was going in my head, but we came back to the ship unscathed. Uh, you know, the jets were fine. We were fine. So it really didn't scar me or stay with me in the long term. Um, you know, I certainly have had flights uh, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, uh, that were scary. You know, the stakes were high. Uh, we're supporting troops on the ground with close air support. Uh, we we were dealing with, you know, austere conditions, hostile conditions, um, diverts, blue water ops. Um, you know, we we were coming back uh, via Australia um, from that first deployment when, and I I really, again, I was still relatively new, but I hate to question leadership's decision, but I have no idea why we were flying Blue Water Ops with pitching deck at night. Um, you know, those flights, those landings yeah. are um, really vividly um, in my memory. Uh, and I, I lost my hides over... China Lake, and I had to um, try for a field arrestment, and uh, blew both main mounts, had a hook skip, and you know my wizzo was preparing to eject. A healthy <laughs> uh, emergency. Yeah, yeah. I said, "Give me one more shot." Came around <laughs> for flying for a flying arrestment. You know the pass of my life, uh, and so th those are the flights that really, yeah. you know, I can. Imagine telling my grandkids about, uh, you know, or flashing before my eyes on my deathbed. But Certainly. the, the tic-tac encounter, uh, it doesn't stick with me in that way. Yeah, I can, I can relate to that. You know, I mean, most of my like vividly clear memories of flying are of, you know, the tactical scenarios where I think I'm, I'm at least somewhat smart enough to know the risk that I'm exposed to to some degree. <laughs> Uh, and hyper aware and hyper focused on succeeding uh, as we push those boundaries. Um, well, very cool. Um, I know you participated in the carrier documentary to some small degree. Um, I watched that actually just before I joined the Navy. So thank you for the additional motivation that you provided me. Um, so you know, if we if we may kind of just step back a little bit to to the Tic Tac incident. Um, for people that haven't heard of it before, do you think you could just do a, a quick walkthrough of your involvement in that? Sure. So we had two aircraft, Flight of Two, uh, that launched from the carrier uh, off the coast of San Diego. And it was midday. It was clear blue skies, calm waters. Uh, and we were launching to do uh, an air-to-air -air intercept exercise, kind of like a scrimmage for folks who... Uh, aren't familiar. Um, so we're going to you know, come at each other, uh, blue air, red air, and practice our maneuvers and then reset and do it again uh, until we run out of fuel. So uh, I was, uh, again, the pilot in the Dash 2 or the, the wingman position on the wing of Commander David Fravor, the skipper of the squadron. Uh, we both had weapon systems officers, Wizzos, in our back seat. Uh, and so we launched. Uh, we rendezvoused, and we were still in the administrative phase of flight. So, as you know, that's when we uh, check our fuel and uh, you know, drink our water and eat our snacks and, you know, get ourselves and our, and our aircraft uh, ready to do that tactical portion of the flight. Um, and we were, uh, and I say this because, um, you know, we get so many questions about why we didn't have our tapes on, why we weren't recording video at that point. Um, and again, as you know, we don't flip the tapes on until we transition or flip the switch into that um, fight sound and tactical mode. So we were just transiting. And um, I don't want to say we were bored, <laughs> but it was that boring uh, part of the flight where you're just, uh, you know, sort of commuting to the office, as it were. And uh, we were interrupted. We were asked to 
divert or or change course and uh, you know intercept this radar contact that uh, another ship, uh, the USS Princeton and the carrier strike group. Um, so we were off of the USS Nimitz aircraft carrier, and the, the Princeton was part of that um, battle group. The way I describe it for folks who aren't familiar, I say, have you ever played Battleship? <laughs> you know, you have all those little pieces. Um, you know, those are boats, those are ships, and um, the carrier is the really big one. So one of the smaller ones had this um, high-powered, sophisticated radar that um, was picking up these tracks. And I didn't know it at the time, but uh, have since been told that they were uh, getting these strange readings, these strange hits at, at weird altitudes and airspeeds um, for days, if not up to two weeks prior. And so they did what anyone does when your machine's not working. They turned it off, turned it back on <laughs> to see if that would clear it. And um, just as we do with the the jets sometimes, um, I always thought that was funny. When Lots of times, actually. Yes. <laughs> Say, you know. Number one troubleshooting. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so they turned it back on and they were still getting these weird hits. And so we were the first aircraft airborne when they were seeing these uh, anomalies. And so they vectored us. They said, hey, go check this out and see if there's something there, there. And so I think that they were as surprised as we were to actually find that there was something tangible, <laughs> that yeah. there was something there, there. Um, so, so as they counted down the, the miles to merge plot, um, you know, we started looking outside. Of course, we're working our long and short range radar mechanics, trying to lock it up on our aircraft radar. Um, it's what, rating, the 73? Yep. APG 73. So that, you know, the newest top of the line radar at the time. And, uh, and then our squadrons were still to ice us shortly after thereafter, but we were flying with the 73 at the time. And we looked outside, we tried to, to pick up a tally, and somebody among the four of us noted that there was something in the water, that there was a disturbance in this otherwise calm, um, you know, no waves, no, you know, nothing going on, um, no other boats in the area or anything. And, uh, so that's what got all four of us looking in the same airspace, because um, as you know, it's hard to get a tally unless you have some sort of funneling feature or uh, something to, to talk on to. So as I'm looking at this uh, sort of whitewater um, roiling, uh, I see this this thing zip across, uh, you know, and, and then start to, to look at that and... Um, try to figure out what it is and uh, realize that it doesn't fit anything that, uh, you know, we study for recce or uh, just through experience and exposure to aircraft and balloons and all that stuff that we see when we're out. Um, it didn't fit any of those. Uh, and, and so that was, you know, people ask me, oh, what was your emotional state? Um, you know, I had a roller coaster of emotions from um, that initial boredom to uh, excitement about, you know, what are we going to go do? And I asked my Wizzo, I said, you know, what, what's happening? And he said, well, maybe we're going to intercept some drug runners that are coming up the coast, you know, from Mexico or parts south. And I thought, oh, you know, okay. That's, cool mission. That's interesting. That's different. Yeah. And um, and then when we saw this whitewater disturbance, I thought, oh, well, whatever we were chasing is, has crashed and is sinking. And now we are on scene commanders for search and rescue. Um, you know, so my heart sort of sank, but then almost as, as quickly as that happened, you know, this thing entered the picture and I said, you know, what the hell is that? And, uh, you know, sort of confusion and, um, you know, the, the, like, what do I do? I don't, I don't have enough experience to, know what what to do in this situation um you know that's when dave fravor said you know elected to go nose down while he stayed up yeah, I, <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. So then I said, oh, cool. I'm high cover, yeah. uh, which just means like I'll hang out up here. And yeah. Have your back, <laughs> whatever that means. Because we had, we had no loadout, right? We had a cabin. The down there. Yeah. So um, that's what happened. And, uh, you know, I think there's been a lot of questions about, or I've been asked a lot about um, the time discrepancy that, you know, Dave Fravor had a, a much longer visual lock and um, you felt the encounter was much longer. And, uh, you know, I, as the Dash 2 uh, most junior uh, person in the flight, uh, it doesn't surprise me that, that my tally was much shorter. <laughs> yeah. That I was the first to, you know, lose sight and um, and focus more on keeping, you know, not smashing into my lead and keeping my own jet upright <laughs> and all of that. So Your bucket's um, more full. It, That's just the nature of the beast. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, he turned with it and and then it just disappeared, just zipped away. Uh, and we, as you know, there's, there's, you know, two radios, uh, two ICS and, and four people just shouting and, you know, <laughs> uh, both, you know, asking questions, but then also, um, you know, trying to be direct in the situation where we don't have a, a playbook. We don't have a, an SOP or standard comms. Um, so the controller in the Princeton, I think, said, um, you know, it's, it's back at your cap point. And I don't know whether it's been suggested that somehow it's a sentient being that knew where, cap, you know, it was, or it was otherwise sort of surveilling and collecting information to know where a cap point was. And um, part of me thinks that maybe the controller just used that as a reference point because we were all familiar with it. Um, so I, I can't speak to whether, how how I, how that ended up being the, the location, but it was so far away that it didn't make sense. And it also made us think, well, maybe it was, you know, our thing that we were trying to intercept dis disappeared in some way. And another thing popped up over there so mm -hmm. you can't discount yeah. that yeah yeah we we really didn't understand what it was that we were seeing and we didn't understand what it was that the controllers were seeing because both the visual and the radar hits didn't make sense um, for what we were what we were used to or sort of what you would expect in a standard air-to-air -air intercept mm-hmm so, you know, I know there another aircraft eventually launched after you returned to shore. They were able to capture the FLIR video, uh, which was taken and presumed to be of the same object. Uh, my understanding, there was some, I'll call it par for the course, you know, ridiculing, or would you say it was more than that afterwards on the topic? Yeah. So we came back and, um, you know, the fact that the four of us had seen it visually that the other two um, air crew and that single um, that had launched in the cycle after us uh, had managed to get the FLIR. The fact that the other ship uh, with their controllers were um, privy to this. You know, none of us were um, embarrassed or ashamed or in any way saying, ooh, you know, I don't Should we not it, talk like about we just came back, <laughs> you know, we came back and said, hey, there's something out there. Yeah. Uh, that we, you know, it's weird. We're not sure what it was. Um, and again, being the most junior person on the wing of my skipper, I didn't pursue it. Um, I figured if anything needs to be debriefed, if anything needs to be followed up on, you know, there's there's three other senior folks in this flight, including the commanding officer of the squadron. You know, you got they, it. they have it. <laughs> and and I, I don't have to I, I shouldn't, uh, and I don't need to follow up on this. Um, so, yes, on the ship's TV, which is, as you know, this sort of closed circuit, um, there's three or four channels. Uh, they were playing you know, Men in Black and uh, Sirens and, uh, you know, the, the alien UFO uh, usual suspects. The airplane <laughs> cartoon as well, I imagine. 
Yes, yeah, the for a couple of days of the airplane cartoon, airplane cartoon, referencing the incident. So, um, you know, I would say it was, it it was all in in good fun, um, but it wasn't until years later when I was, um, I would say, formally debriefed um, by the folks in the Pentagon that I realized how inadequate the formal response was. So, you know, you would expect to be um, ridiculed and, and, um, you know, the butt of jokes for a while because we work hard, we play hard, we, um, you know, And you bet you moved on quickly. Oh, yeah. No, it didn't, like, nobody's feelings were hurt. Yeah. You know, we were I just mean, like, you know, the movies were up and people talked about a little bit and then probably the next day or the day after you guys were back, you know, doing your mission, doing your briefs and moving on. Right. Totally. Um, but from a, a serious, uh, you know, the, the ship captain, the uh, carrier strike group admiral perspective, if I had air crew coming back and saying there's something flying around that's not an aircraft, uh, it's not a balloon, it's not a flock of seagulls, and it's trundling through our military training exercise airspace and just off the coast of San Diego where we have a high-density uh, population center, I would have said, hey, training time out. <laughs> all, this, all this getting ready for deployment stuff that we're doing is important, um, but maybe we can afford to send a few extra assets and, and divert some resources, time, energy, staff, fuel uh, to investigate this further because it could be an adversary conducting some sort of surveillance on us. It could be um, a safety of flight issue. Right? It could be, we sort of say it's national security concern and it's also um, just safety concern that there's something out there that um, we might smack into. So, um, you know, year, years later, I realized just how little was um, was done to investigate in the moment and to capture even the basic information. Like, um, you know, I was I was turning over my logbook and these airplanes with the cartoons on them, and um, you know, providing contact information for everybody who was in the flight, um, sort of putting the pieces together um, for these folks who are doing the investigation and the analysis, again, years after the fact. And um, so I think that, you know, part of what you're advocating for and what I advocate for is to have a standardized, systematic process, uh, a way to report uh, and to have a a template to follow, uh, to collect that information and put it, you know, through the right channels into a, an archive or a database where it can be analyzed systematically and we can make sense of it. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of making sense of it, um, how, how have you made sense of your experience over the years? Have you attempted to make sense of it? Have you just taken the experience for what it is and, and it's your memory, but you're not there to really delve into it much more or is this is this something you don't really you know engage with like I guess philosophically or push the boundaries you're just waiting for more information to come out before you you kind of take that plunge perhaps how do you approach this topic I would say what is the topic even yes (laughs) yes and um so in part of my teaching uh I talk a lot about critical thinking and uh, I teach, you know, a whole class on, on critical thinking. And I've been doing this for years before uh, this really, um, I would, not since I've been thinking about it and talking about it, but, you know, since I've been sort of in the, the popular zeitgeist, um, I would start each semester, I would ask my students, uh, or I would tell them, we're going to do a critical thinking exercise. And I put up this resource it's from criticalthinking.org. 
uh, which is a great uh, resource. They have a good website. They have books. They have tools for teachers from kindergarten through, you know, graduate level uh, higher ed. And I say, okay, here's the framework, and we're going to talk about um, whatever subject you want to choose. We can choose the um, the opioid crisis. We can talk about gun control. We can talk about climate change. Um, or we can talk about UFOs. And 99% of the students <laughs> say, oh, I want to talk about UFOs. You know, sure. because all those other topics are kind of, you know, kind of a bummer and they're talking about Do they them understand your, your context in, in this conversation? Not this always. Uh, now students, yeah, it's if they Google me, a lot more UFO stuff comes up. But this is, you know, I'm talking about like, um, you know, 2014, 2016, way before the 60 Minutes. Um, or, or I've done a lot of these interviews since. Um, so... I, I think it's fun to use the UFO topic as this critical thinking exercise because we ask the question, you know, what is the question at issue? What are we talking about? Um, and s- students immediately start jumping down rabbit holes and making assumptions. And, um, you know, then we start to say, well, what is uh, what is the evidence? What sort of facts do we have? And where can we get more facts and, and more data? And who cares? Who are the stakeholders? Uh, you know, why Why does the government care? Or why do you as a citizen care? Or why do pilots care? Why do, um, you know, private industry uh, or academics or, you know, just go down the list? And, and when we start to unpack this topic, um, I find it much more interesting to look at those elements you know, I refer to it as the phenomenon behind the phenomenon um, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what is it that I actually saw that day as I mean that's how that's I would say that's my uh, modus operandi as well well let me ask you what what are perhaps some of if you're aware of them uh, of some of those assumptions your underlying assumptions that you use when engaging this this topic? Right. Well, so so many people use the term UFO as a euphemism. When I say UFO or UAP, I mean it literally. Uh, so I saw a UFO on November 14th, 2004. And what I mean is that I saw an unidentified and unidentifiable flying object. And it, in the pure sense that we don't know what it is or what it was. And so many people, when you say UFO, they go straight to the Hollywood version, uh, you know, the uh, flying saucer, extraterrestrial origin. Um, and and so words matter, language matters. And, um, you know, I think that we're struggling with uh, sort of unraveling and undoing a century or more of science fiction and Hollywood uh, sort of uh, narrative conditioning. Yes. Um, And, and allowing ourselves to get back to the root of what we're talking about, um, which is making sense of something, which we do in all sorts of uh, situations and, and, you know, all, all the different fields of science I'm thinking about, um, you know, understanding microscopic organisms or, um, you know, the, um, if you had given me an iPhone, uh, 20 years ago, I would have said it was some sort of voodoo magic. Um, but, uh, you know, we, it's, it's important to have a good imagination because it leads to innovation and, um, things that we might not otherwise reach for, but we also have to stay grounded in, science and facts and work our way systematically towards that um, fantastic idea that we have. For me, the issue itself, as far as I've been able to identify it, is uncertainty. And for me, that was very pertinent to me as a tactical aviator, as I'm sure it was to you, because uncertainty in the battle space is like 
you know, the first thing that we have to resolve before we employ our weapons and, and, you know, consider tactically what we're going to do. And for me, this, this conversation, whether it's national security, aviation safety, or science, it's, it's a matter of uncertainty. And we're seeing, we're, we have uncertainty because there are objects that are not meeting our expectations. Um, and that's really as far as I can get in the conversation, frankly. I, I you know, I, I know for a fact there is uncertainty because I've been there and I have been uncertain. I've, you know, we've seen and have detected these objects. Um, and so I understand from a first person perspective how that uncertainty can exist in the in the space. And again, from national security all the way to aviation safety, if we ignore any of these one factors, they're going to eventually, if we don't mitigate them, they're going to cause an issue over time. And that's just, that's a lesson we've learned in, in aviation safety time and time again. Um, so, you know, to the point you made earlier about reporting, that's one of the things we're trying to do at safeaerospace.org is to be able to provide an outlet for these aviators that are dealing with uncertainty. It doesn't mean every aviator that we speak to is is seeing, you know, aliens flying around up there. But the fact of the matter is, is there are a lot of pilots reaching out because they have uncertainty in their operating space. And that's something we work very hard to mitigate. Uh, we would expect the normal processes to step into place, such as the safety reporting mechanisms that already exist, to be able to mitigate those safety risks. But for this particular topic, they seem to uh, ignore that. I don't know, maybe ignore is not the right word, but um, it seems to slip through the filter to some degree. Um, do you think that there is um, more to be learned if we can encourage more reporting from pilots? Or are, is this purely just a safety issue and not necessarily a scientific issue? Right, I think it's all three. I, I see it as a, a three-legged stool where we have concerns of national security, uh, we have concerns of flight safety, and we have uh, the natural curiosity of science, and we have to balance those three. Uh, and I saw that on full display when I attended the NASA independent study session last fall, uh, and they it was the first session, first meeting, and they had invited me to sort of present as a, a credible witness, you know, somebody who had seen uh, a, a UFO unidentified uh, flying object in the, in the pure sense of the term. Uh, and then they proceeded over the course of two days to wrestle with this existential question of, you know, what is it that we're talking about here? Uh, and, and what is that you know, do we do we actually have operators out there seeing things that can't be classified? And you know, cue Alex Dietrich. Yes, <laughs> the there are. Um, and then you had a representative from the DoD. It was actually Sean Kirkpatrick, Dr. Kirkpatrick, uh, current head of Aero. Uh, you had a representative from the FAA, uh, and you had these folks from NASA. And then the across the, the country and, and across the world from the academic community uh, wrestling with that question of is this something that we should invest in collectively uh, you know as a, as a as a taxpayer do I want the government uh, writ large to be spending uh, my my hard-earned taxpayer dollars on a program that collects this information and then analyzes it and if yes you know how do we justify that is it security is it safety is it science is it a combination of those three and if yes how do we execute meaning who's responsible for the hardware the radars, the FLIRs, the high-resolution cameras, the uh, sensors, the servers that are going to store all of this data because we're talking about massive uh, data sets and, and really looking for a needle in the haystack if we're um, talking about these tiny objects and massive airspace. And then the staffing, you know, who's going to man all of that equipment and analyze all of that information uh, and then access. <laughs> so the DOD is going to say, well, if we've collected it all, we've analyzed it, it's probably going to be behind our, our classified firewalls. Um, the FAA and, and NASA and the scientists are going to say, 
this should be open source and, and available for peer review and, and for safety uh, operations and implications. So it was really interesting to see them uh, have that debate and um, and to, to see what they're going to recommend. I think, and I'm not sure the timeline for their next report. It should or the be recommendations. soon, I believe. Yeah, pretty much right. any time. And we're recording this at the uh, on August 23rd right now. Right. Um, but it, it also, I felt like, although I haven't been thinking about it constantly, I have been forced to think about it enough because of um, so many other folks wanting to have the conversation. I watched that room full of executives and you know PhDs, people who were uh, absolutely um, brilliant in their professional and and, and personal um, sort of you know the peak of their careers, and I just I found myself being really impatient with them as they got caught up. You know, that, that I was like, okay, yes, you know, all right, you know, I, you need to move along this um, sort of the, I'm, I'm thinking of the grief curve or the emotional response to change, you know, where you go through shock, anger, rejection, and acceptance. Um, and so many of them were sort of in the shock, anger, rejection phase. And um, I was like, okay, we need to speed it up, people, because we've only got a few more hours here. <laughs> Uh, and you need I to wasn't move to convince them of the reality, but what to do about it, right? And you couldn't get past the the former, right? And um, and and a lot, and it was really interesting to see the most recent um, NASA independent study session with that they um, that they aired, right? They put it on a live yeah, a stream meeting, yeah, because they kicked it off by acknowledging how many of them had been subject to harassment and bullying and online, um, you know, stalking and, and threats. And um, they had been concerned about it in that first meeting about a year ago, sort of their professional reputation, you know, oh, what am I going to be um, taken seriously among my colleagues and my peers uh, in a professional sense? And then realizing very quickly that not only are they at risk for ridicule at that level, but also uh, just being bombarded by these rabid people, which I don't really understand the motivation of these folks who are, um, I don't even want to say they're advocating, they're really sort of about this um, I'm not too familiar with the nature of the harassment, but I did hear that they were having problems with it. Um, yeah, I think if there's one thing we can agree on, regardless of the nature, is that everyone should just be encouraged and, and enabled to be able to report this and talk about this freely. And that should right. be scientists on either side of the spectrum of whether, you know, it, I know there are people that are, they have, they're setting various beliefs on this topic and that's fine, but you know, there's no reason to harass those that are, are still looking into data on this topic and, you can't force someone to to believe the same thing as you, right? And that's that's part of my curiosity with the subject is um, not necessarily figuring out what it was that we saw that day, but trying to figure out why people are so emotional about it. Um, it's almost like a religious fervor mm. that folks get when they're um, having these heated debates online or. Uh, you know, I've gotten a lot of this sort of harassment or direct messaging myself where um, on both sides of the spectrum from the sort of conspiracy theorists, uh, you know, demanding disclosure and accusing me of somehow um, withholding information or not not being fully transparent or anything like that uh, to the, the other end of the spectrum where there's the hardcore debunkers who... Um, I get a call from a reporter. Oh, I don't want to say the wrong, but it was it was like a. I want to say it was Popular Mechanics, but it was it was a reputable sort of established um, media outlet, and you know he called. He said, "I want to interview you." 
And he and by the end of the conversation, he was like yelling at me, saying, "Don't you believe in science? And how dare you fuel the computer?" Because he it. wanted me to say something along the lines of, you know, there's a prosaic explanation and whatever we saw that day, I'm sure, is, you know, an adversary, you know, some advanced tech spying on us. Sometimes it's not necessarily a comforting thought, to be frank. It's strange. No, that and I said, I can't say that because I have no I have no evidence. I have no yeah. reason to, to say that. Um, and I said, I don't know what we saw that day. And he started yelling at me, saying, you know, how <laughs> oh. dare you? I remember, don't you believe in science? And I thought, well, yeah, that's exactly why I won't, <laughs> I won't um, you know, speculate. I mean, isn't belief in that. science almost an oxymoron itself? Right. When size, it doesn't <laughs> depend on belief. Right. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, Alex, you know, I know this conversation has changed a lot. And I've, I've, I've had some conversations and interviews where I've had to kind of battle it back to the middle ground in either direction. Um, perhaps just like you have, you know, what, how do you, you know, now it's 2023, this conversation has gone to the highest levels, at least within the United States, um, at least almost to the highest level. Um, how do you interpret what's happening now and what do you think lies in the future? Well, I'd like to turn that question back around to you because you were recently uh, testifying before Congress. And um, I'm curious as to you know, how that trip went, uh, what sort of uh, conversations you were able to have before and after the official testimony, uh, and the sense that you got while you were boots on ground on the Hill about whether the representatives are taking this issue seriously and, uh, you know, whether they made any commitments to follow through on their end. Yeah, that's a great question. Be happy to talk about that. Um, so I actually, the hearing was on a Wednesday and I went down, uh, actually on Sunday, but, uh, I was visiting, um, with staffers and representatives, uh, on Monday and Tuesday before the hearing. And the purpose, uh, was I, I met with, um, some of the representatives like representative Burchett and representative Luna, who have been very vocal on this topic. Uh, but I also, uh, went and spoke with, uh, representative, uh, Garcia, Chairman Grothman, um, uh, and others. Um, and to be frank, a lot of them, um, were not, um, overly approachable. I'd say initially they were pretty cold to the topic. Um, and, you know, we had a good conversation and I really was able to just talk to them about why this is a national security concern and a domain awareness gap issue. Um, and it, it really did make a big difference talking to them and having that conversation before the hearing. In fact, some of those representatives weren't even planning on attending uh, and, and put it on their calendar while I was in the meeting with them. Um, and so it goes to show that while you might see some representatives that are extremely passionate uh, and active on the topic, it doesn't mean that the information, the passion is, is evenly shared amongst uh, all the folks on the same committee or even in the same party. Um, and so it really does, uh, you know, people writing letters, people talking to representatives, it really does make a big difference as long as it's, it's done the correct way. Um, because these these representatives and people on Capitol Hill obviously have a lot of uh, things on their plate and on their mind, and they have to judge what their constituents care about by what they receive as messaging. And um, I know that in the recent past, there's been um, a lot of energy put on this topic and 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 that has been noticed by the representatives. I've been hearing it from them. But to continue to answer your question, um, yeah, some of them were really not up to speed on the conversation. We're not really uh, planning on attending and we're able to turn some folks around. Uh, after the hearing, um, there, I'll leave it relatively vague, but I do believe that there is earnest interest in uh, moving the conversation forward from the representatives that I spoke with. Um, that includes several of the offices working on pilot reporting legislation uh, that I'm helping to recommend on. Um, and so, I mean, not just myself, but Americans for Safe Aerospace uh, in entirety is preparing uh, those recommendations uh, in conjunction with those offices um, so that we will not only have the pilot reporting, but hopefully in the near future, uh, pilots don't feel like there would be any repercussions for reporting on the commercial side. And just to be clear, this is primarily uh, in concerns to commercial aviation reporting. Um, right. And so I do believe, you know, to continue to answer the question, it really does seem that the interest that people saw at the hearing uh, 
stuck and was earnest and that there is a lot of energy being put into resolving some of the issues that were brought to light during that hearing, at least from the issues that I brought to light. Right. Uh, and so just having watched the hearing, I thought it was really interesting how there were sort of two tracks, right? You and David Fravor uh, talking about the aviator's experience and encountering something unusual, unknown, and not really having a standard reporting channel and, uh, you know, maybe being taken seriously for things. And then the guy sitting between the two of you <laughs> who had this sort of different track, um, what was that like? Uh, and did you find it distracting to the Americans for Safe Airspace uh, sort of advocacy that you're working on? Or, I mean, I just, I thought it was a really interesting. Yeah, it's, it was quite the track. dynamic. Yeah. And it, it, there was a concern, a cause for concern that the, well, let me back up and say, I really view as the conversation we're having as two different conversations. The aviators, myself and Commander Fravor, were really talking about what our experiences are and what people are dealing with now and what needs to be done moving forward in regards to aviation safety and national security about the issue that's happening now. Um, and Mr. Grush's you know, experiences seem to be of more of a historical nature. My understanding is that he was tasked to do research when he was attached to the UAP task force. Um, and so he was tasked with doing a historical assessment of some of the claims that were made. Um, and so, yes, there was a risk, at least from my perspective, that the pragmatic aviation safety issues might get lost in some of the more fantastical conversations that were occurring <laughs> to my left. Um, you know, that was all pretty much new information for myself, as I'm sure you're aware. Uh, that's not my personal experience in the Navy is being engaged in any of the topics that uh, Mr. Grush talked about. Um, so that, you know, that was mostly new information and interesting for me to hear myself. You know, I'm a, I'll, people keep asking me what I, what I think about it. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I don't, I don't know what I think about it. All I know is that this man had, was tasked with, with doing this type of research and he's testified under oath that he has various uh, pieces of evidence that he can use to substantiate what he said under oath. So from my perspective, I'm eager to see how con Congress is going to move forward to validate those statements in a secure setting and then also how they're going to continue to communicate that with the American people. Right. I tend to get frustrated when folks, even even with our situation, um, you know, they suggest that what we saw on November 14, 2004 off the coast of San Diego is the same thing that... Uh, your squadron and the East Coast squadrons were seeing um, in a different you know, time and place. And that, that is somehow related to what David Grush was uh, asserting in his testimony. And, and I keep going back to, you know, hey, if we're talking about unidentified flying objects or, or uh, you know, unusual, weird things that we can't explain, it would be really irresponsible to suggest that they are the same things or that they're of the same origin. Um, and so keeping that. Almost by definition I, I of the problem, we can't determine that. <laughs> right, so. exactly. So um, you know, I had a little bit of a question mark over my head in the way um, that that hearing was conducted, that we, we sort of had two parallel issues happening um, and conversations that were sort of getting um, hopefully not confused by the representatives and and how they follow through. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we'll see. I, I would say just from my perspective, based off of the way they've communicated on the topic afterwards, they seem to feel comfortable with communicating on this issue as a matter of national security and aviation safety. Um, so at least from my perspective, I consider it mission success. They seem to be concerned about that. And and that's, you know, again, what I'm helping to advise on, move legislation forward on. So um, there certainly was a risk, but um, at least from my perspective, I think overall it was a win for, for Americans for Safe Aerospace Mission and for aviation safety. Amen. <laughs> well, Alex, I'm really happy that you joined me today. Um, now that we have this ability to do remote interviews, perhaps we can uh, do this more often. Yes, definitely. I know that uh, you know every time I 
say, oh, this is the last interview or this is the last uh, time this issue is, is you know, sort of flaring up, uh, then we have balloon gate. <laughs> or <laughs> yeah, we have I mean, that was a pretty big something. deal. We didn't even yeah, talk about no, that. it was. Yeah. Um, so all that is to say that I uh, hope that this is the first of many conversations. And uh, thank you for all that you do to advocate for and through the Americans for Safe Aerospace. Uh, and I hope that I can support uh, in whatever small way that I can contribute. Awesome. Well, Alex Dietrich, thank you so much for joining me. You know, you've had an amazing career, fighter pilot, and now you're a teaching professor. Um, really happy I was able you were able to join us today. And thanks for everything you're doing for aviation safety and for Americans for Safe Aerospace. Over and out. Over and out. Thanks. <laughs>